need to balance the grid to provide you know, exactly as much uh, supply as there is demand. And as demand changes, supply needs to instantly adjust. I don't expect wind and solar developers to be advocating for hydropower. They just want to build their build their megawatts, and then it's someone else's job to balance the grid. And so this is why hydropower needs to step up and, and tell its story. And we're the unsung hero of the grid. Welcome back to DAM, the official podcast of Northwest Hydropower. I'm your host, Austin Rohr, and I manage all things communications here at Northwest River Partners. Now, we may be the official podcast of Northwest Hydropower, but today we're going to the official organization of National Hydropower, the National Hydropower Association. And our guest is none other than Malcolm Wolf, president of NHA. Malcolm, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Happy to be here. So Malcolm, first, we try and give our, our uh, audience kind of an idea of who our guests are and, and what they do. So could you maybe talk to me about what your path was to the current position you have with NHA? Sure. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a lawyer by, by training, uh, spent a few years in private practice, but really got motivated by clean energy and sustainability. So I moved over to work at the Environmental Protection Agency and then Capitol Hill and in and out of state government, including a stint uh, as kind of the energy czar for uh, Maryland Governor Martin O'Malley uh, years ago. Um, and I, uh, when I was contacted when Linda uh, Terziachi retired about uh, applying for the position with National Hydropower about four years ago, I had to do a double take because I had spent 25 plus years in clean energy, uh, working with wind and solar and batteries and offshore wind. And yet I'd, I'd never really dived into hydropower. And I had to think about, you know, hey, is, that, is this an interesting area? Is this something I want to pursue? Uh, and my first instinct out of ignorance was, nah, it's an established technology. There's, you know, nothing exciting going on. And, and as I dived into it, I realized just how, just how wrong I was. Uh, and in, in particular, I was thinking about what do I want to do with the next phase of my, of my career and realized that the, the key thing that had motivated me to that point was how do we replace all this dirty fossil fuel? And we have an answer now. We know that there's cost-effective ways to replace uh, coal and, and over time natural gas. The next question was, well, if we do that, will we have a 24-7 reliable grid? And what's it going to take to do that? And to me, that seemed to be a much harder, challenging question. And, and I like the challenges. So uh, I'm excited I made the move to NHK. And what kind of things were you able to learn through that experience that maybe helped you when you started to wrap your head around hydropower and, and started to learn more about that technology? Well, I've been very focused working with developers on how do we get projects built. So how do you get them licensed? How do you get them built? How do you get them financed? A lot of it was focused on securing power purchase agreements. Um, and I didn't really focus on how do you get them integrated to the grid? How do you get them? Uh, you know, are they actually going to be dispatched? Um, how does it work with um, uh, in competitive markets with, with RTOs? So I think I had a good background on, on energy issues and the politics of energy issues and the players there. But hydropower is, is different. Um, you know, water is a shared resource. The water that, that powers uh, our generators 
then flows downstream into communities. So we have a much different relationship with communities, um, kind of the intersection between all of the really complicated environmental questions, climate issues, and then kind of environmental water quality, water quantity issues uh, makes hydropower really, really interesting. So here at North River Partners, hydropower advocacy for us really looks like, you know, primarily looking at it from almost a standpoint of, of trying to protect the resources we have, right? You know, we're not necessarily in the market here in the Northwest of trying to build new dams and, and things like that. Um, you know, we retrofit our dams, we update them, we try and make them better all the time, but we're really primarily focused on sort of defending what we do already have established. At the national level, what does hydropower advocacy look like? I think it does have a different flavor nationally. Um, my sense, again, coming into hydropower about four years ago with somewhat of kind of fresh eyes, I was surprised just how much the industry seemed to keep its head down. Um, we obviously kind of powered America's prosperity over the last century, but it seemed like with the, with the emergence of the environmental movement in the 70s that we learned to just run our plants, produce our power, and keep our head down so that the environmental community doesn't bash us. And I think as a result, we've missed some opportunities. You know, how, uh, how come renewable portfolio standards don't include existing hydropower? Um, we, we seem to be out of the public consciousness. And from my perspective, um, we can stand proud. We are an amazing, proven, established technology that is exactly what a 21st century grid needs. And our ability to, with both reservoir power and pump storage, to be a dispatchable, flexible resource makes us a perfect complement for wind and solar. You can't have a grid powered just on, on solar because people want to stream their movies, you know, at night. Um, so I think we've got a great story to tell, but our, our culture, our, the industry's um, style um, isn't as we don't we don't tell our stories uh, and we need to do a much better job in doing that so i think it's it's a little bit less perhaps um defensive and more um more hey let's let's uh stand up straight and proud and um and tell our affirmative affirmative story to make sure we're, we're top of mind in people's consciousness well i certainly appreciate you coming on today to to tell your story here on uh, on the podcast because that's Certainly something we're all about here as well is, is trying to tell as many stories as possible when it comes to hydro. Um, one of the things that, that comes to mind for me, you know, I'm sure there's a combination, but do you find that for, for the advocacy you do at your level that you're working more on sort of a federal side or do you find that it's a lot of um, state by state kind of work? So as a national association, we definitely focus on national federal issues. Um, and in fact, I think the hydropower industry um, has a culture of focusing mostly on um, federal issues and not on state issues. In part, I think this is a product of the utility, investor-owned utility business model, where they have a service territory that they are responsible for and regulated by, by the local uh, public utility commission. And so there's kind of a sense of each utility can manage things in their own service territory, focus at the federal level, because that's where um, 
where it could use the help. And I think that might have made sense, and that might make sense for maybe investor-owned utilities and for Edison Electric Institute. I don't think that makes sense any longer for, for hydropower. I think a lot of energy and energy policy is being driven by state policies, whether it's state RPS standards or RTO decisions, and the hydropower industry needs to be engaging in those state regional RTO market decisions. And uh, we need to be standing up for hydropower as a resource um, and not um, be as deferential on the kind of local issues. So um, we've talked, NHA's board has talked extensively about this, but we still focus predominantly on federal issues. We recognize that there are times when we need to engage on state and regional issues, uh, particularly when they're of, of national significance. And so I, I'm sure we're going to come to the Snake River um, in a few minutes, but that is that is kind of first and foremost one of the regional issues that I think we now recognize is a national issue, and NHA is happy to um, get off the sidelines and start engaging them. And speaking from experience, I, I can say that you know there is a, a challenge there. Um, I, I can imagine, you know, we try and emphasize that not all dams are alike, and you know, even within uh, one river system, within one sort of project, you know, from, from one dam to the next, we understand that they may even appear similar, but they, they are not the same, right? Their power output's the same. Maybe their fish passage is the same, you know, geographically, their location, everything like that. I mean, you, you can't treat any two dams alike is, is kind of what we say. So I imagine when you're looking at it from sort of a national level and, and a, you know, looking at making policy there, um, it's got to be challenging to prioritize to, to find solutions that work. How, how does NHA sort of figure out what those priorities are and, and what are those priorities? You're, you're exactly right. If you've seen one hydropower plant, you've seen one hydropower plant. They're all different. And that's part of the, uh, the genius and, and the wonderful thing about, about the technology and the industry, but it also comes with its own set of, of, of drawbacks. Um, for a national association like, like NHA, uh, we're looking for those issues that are really going to move the needle for the vast majority of our members. So it may not be everybody, but it's um, it, the issues that are really going to um, advance the ball. And as, a, as an association, um, I, I sometimes like to think of our value proposition in three buckets, um, one of which is advocacy, which we're focusing on today and is, is, my, is my love. Um, but NHA is also has as a, as a core value proposition the ability to connect. So we do lots of events around the country to connect the industry with policymakers, with each other, um, which is uh, which is exciting. The other thing we provide are, are insights. Um, so we try to share um, technical insights and policy insights and, and what's coming down the pike um, with our membership. So kind of advocate, connect and inform our three buckets of value proposition. Um, and we look for those issues which can kind of help everybody. So uh, on the advocacy side, which I think was your, your question, um, the two current priorities we're focusing on now are license reform, which is um, obviously a huge issue challenging both new hydropower as well as maintaining the existing fleet, and then getting parity in federal support and tax code. Uh, the Inflation Reduction Act did a lot 
Um, but um, it still leaves the existing fleet at a disadvantage, competitive disadvantage versus most others. And to do that, I imagine, you know, it, it requires some partnership. And I know you've formed some really strong partnerships with some of the regional organizations, including ourselves and our friends over at like the Northwest Hydroelectric Association. Do other regions around the country have similar groups you're able to partner with? I wish. Um, there are some which are wonderful, but what you guys and what Brenna at Northwest Hydro Association have done is, is amazing. Um, there's uh, certainly other organizations in other regions. I uh, just came back from, uh, um, from MHUB, the Midwest Hydropower Users Group, um, and there's groups, there's state-specific groups, uh, particularly in New England, um, but there's no other region that has uh, as strong and vibrant uh, organizations as the Pacific Northwest. And in part, that's unique to the Pacific Northwest because of who you are, but also just the density uh, and concentration of hydropower. You're, you know, depending on the state, 60, 70 plus percent hydropower, which no other region has. It is an interesting thing to, to look at because, you know, we do have such a robust hydropower resource here. And when you look around the country, there's, um, you know, a lot of dams that are you know, arguably more famous than some of ours. I mean, we have Grand Coulee and Bonneville, which are fairly popular, but there's a lot of dams across the Southwest and um, throughout the East Coast and Midwest and places that, you know, are kind of iconic. And yet um, you don't see the same amount of hydropower being relied on in those places. Yeah, it's, I mean, each region has a different, a different portfolio mix, um, but it is interesting how, in the public perception, so many people assume if there's a dam, then there's hydropower. They conflate the two. So um, you know, if there's a, a, a dam failure, uh, even you know, a non-power dam failure somewhere in the country, um, hydropower gets a black eye um, because people uh, don't recognize the difference between a dam and a hydropower facility. And as we, you know, get into this conversation, I know we're going to talk a lot more about, you know, some of the different policies and things like that. But as I understand it, that is one thing that, that you've been working on is, is trying to find ways to power a lot of these non-powered dams that exist around there, the, around the country, because there are so many of them. Yeah, and that um, was really kind of eye-opening to me when I was first exploring, kind of moving into the sector, was realizing that there's... You know, 2,500 roughly um, uh, power dams in this nation. Um, or actually, I'm sorry, I think there's 2,200 uh, non-federal, and maybe it's more like um, closer to 3,000 across the country. But then there's 90,000 plus dams, depending on, on the size. So we're 3% of dams in the country, um, which you know one would think would create a whole lot of opportunities for additional um, carbon-free generation if we could tap into it. So we're kind of reframing the conversation from just focusing on power dams to realizing the potential out there for non-power dams is, is huge. And um, I was talking, talking yesterday about some of the, uh, well, an exciting development just, uh, just this week from uh, Rye Energy, they, uh, Rye Development. They have signed a new power purchase agreement with um, Iron Mountain, Iron Mountain, which runs data centers, and they want those data centers to be reliable 24-7. So they've now signed an agreement to buy all of the output from any non-power dam in the West Virginia, Pennsylvania region that 
Rye can develop, they've agreed to be an off-taker. So it's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful step forward to get more non-powered dairies developed. I know Rye is taking a really creative approach of not just focusing on one project, but trying to build a portfolio of projects to power non-power dams. And um, most of these dams are owned by the core. And if the core isn't going to develop them, hey, let's leverage private capital, develop them, and get that carbon-free, flexible generation. And just to clarify for our audience that's listening, how would you describe these dams? I mean, are these primarily there for water storage? Are they there for irrigation? I mean, I, I assume there's a, a combination of all sorts, but, um, you know, is there is there kind of something that you see typically when you're looking at these that, you know, they tend to be there for a certain purpose other than power? Yeah, that's, uh, again, one of the things that um, I was surprised when I joined the industry to learn is that, you know, most of these facilities, uh, and, and perhaps the ones in the Pacific Northwest are kind of the exceptions, but most of these facilities were built for some other purpose other than power. They were built because the town downstream kept flooding, or we needed water storage to have a, a secure water supply for the community. Um, so there's, or, or for navigation, is often what the core is charged with responsibility for, for managing. So you built these, these dams and diversions for one of those other purposes, um, irrigation is another common one. Um, and then to offset the cost, you add power to defray the costs of building and maintaining the facility. Um, but what we're finding is when facilities do uh, get to the end of their useful life and, and voluntarily decide it's no longer economic to maintain these facilities, um, the communities usually want to keep the dams. Um, they were there for flood control, irrigation, recreation, um, water storage. And even if they're not producing power, uh, the communities want to keep them. So it's, uh, I think it's a common misnomer when people think of dams, they think of a, of a power dam when um, these really are almost always multi-purpose facilities. Well, I think the Hoover Dam may be one of the, the exceptions, um, which unfortunately is in the public consciousness. <laughs> right, right. And, and so, you know, one of the, really great things that I've been able to be a part of is to come to some of your events um, and, and come to the conferences and things like that. And I've gotten to participate um, the one you had in Georgia two years ago, and then the one in Sacramento last year. And as part of being at those events, um, you know, I've gotten to participate or, you know, sit in and listen to some of the discussions, the panels around NHA's uncommon dialogue. And, one of the things that I've learned from listening to that is, you know, there's an effort to not only look at opportunities to bring hydropower to a lot of these non-powered dams, but to also look at some of the ones and say, okay, if these aren't, if these truly aren't productive, if they aren't for the common good, then maybe there's opportunities to breach them. And and while we're, you know, definitely on the side of of keeping as many and all of our productive dams as possible. You know, we do recognize that there's, you know, something that you're working towards there. And so I wanted to ask you, you know, what what is Uncommon Dialogue and, and how are you breaking new ground for hydropower development through this program? Thanks for that question. I think it's a, it's a really exciting conversation we're having and collaboration that we're having with the environmental community, dam safety, uh, state officials, um, tribal representatives, 
Um, we can't just talk to ourselves. Uh, we need to better understand what are their, uh, the broader community's needs, expectations. Um, it's been a, a multi-year process. I think we're going on uh, four plus years that this, that this started. Um, and we've slowly been able to understand um, what their concerns are and that we've, to some extent, been talking past each other um, in lots of ways. Um, so I think through a kind of mutual education, we're slowly building some trust at the federal level between kind of the national groups, which then we found areas where we can collaborate. Um, there are issues where we're going to disagree and, you know, the Snake River may be, may be first among them. Um, but there are other areas where we actually can collaborate and, uh, and find areas where one plus one equals three. And it's, it's immediately paid dividends by working together. We were able to get um, the issue of, of hydropower and dams and water management into the infrastructure bill. Uh, and collectively, we got $2.4 to address what we refer to as the three R's. So it's let's retrofit all of the existing hydropower to maximize and all the existing dams to maximize the carbon-free generation. Let's rehabilitate them if there's dam safety issues. And if they're no longer serving any productive purpose, let's remove non-power dams uh, where the owner voluntarily uh, wants to. So those kind of three R's helped us get, uh, get money in the infrastructure bill and then helped us as well in the uh, Inflation Reduction Act uh, climate tax bill um, get incentives for new generation. So I think this collaboration is, um, is working for both worlds. We're, we're finding areas where we can work together um, and we're just being honest with, our, with each other um, on issues where, where we disagree. It's a really great thing because there is such a, a challenge there. You know, we, we speak from personal experience, right? Um, you know, finding, finding that common ground and, and finding ways to partner is, is challenging. And yet it's so important to building solutions and, and really moving forward on these. I just had a guest on yesterday and uh, that episode will be uh, out in the past for people that are, are listening to this one now. But um, uh, my guest was Sean O'Brien. He, he's at the Washington Policy Center here in the Northwest. And one of the things he spoke to was this idea that, you know, you really don't see a lot of action and and progress when it comes to being divided on things. You know, that's you don't see policies move forward when you only have one side working towards it. But where you see the, the progress being made is when we're all kind of working in the same direction and trying to find solutions together. And so uh, it seems like this uncommon dialogue is an opportunity to do exactly that, which is really valuable. I heard a um, someone describe it uh, slightly differently that I thought was interesting the other day. They said that we need less compromise and more creative problem solving. And um, I, I don't think we've, we've thought about it that way in the Uncommon Dialogue, but I think that's what we're trying to do. We're not trying to say, well, you know, you want 10 and I want 100, so let's, you know, let's find something in the middle. But rather, we're trying to find creative solutions that will work for everybody. And, um, and slowly build trust and understand um, what each other's thinking about. So, for example, one example I recall vividly was uh, I was talking in one of the early meetings about the licensing process and how industry needs certainty. And one of the environmentalists was very upset because they said, you're not supposed to be certain that you're going to get a license. If you're not, if it's not a 
appropriate place, the license shouldn't be certain. And I realized we were, we were talking past each other. I was talking about not the certainty that yes, we would always get a license, but rather the certainty of we know how long this is going to take till we get a decision. Um, I don't know what the decision is going to be, but at least I could know, hey, if I go through the steps, it'll be five and a half years, which is what the statute says it should be for a relicensing decision. Um, and instead, we've got um, all sorts of facilities. I'm, I'm thinking of um, uh, uh, Hell's Canyon in Idaho, where their license expired in 2005, and they've been continuing to operate year after year after year while the licensing process continues. So just by talking to each other, we can realize, oh, when you say certainty, you mean something different than what I was hearing. Uh, that's, been, that's been useful. Certainly. Certainly, I can see a, a case for that. Absolutely, um, you know. In general, we do see a lot of conflict in, in public policy and the objectives that people are working towards. And at the same time, it does seem like there's more and more opportunities to kind of bridge those gaps, whether it's with policymakers or some of these organizations. And I think people are starting to understand just how large the challenge is, as far as our goals in meeting decarbonization and meeting our, our energy needs here in the future. Do you think that the policymakers in particular are becoming more aware of how critical hydropower is to our overall resource portfolio? We're certainly, we're certainly trying to raise that awareness. And I think the um, policy leaders in the Pacific Northwest are at the forefront of that. I think there's greater awareness in the Pacific Northwest than there is in other parts of the country. Um, but we're going to keep trying. I think nationally there is a growing um, a growing recognition of the impacts of climate change. I think people are seeing it in in their own lives, um, and so there's a growing um, recognition that um, the energy grid is going to change. Um, I think it's interesting that uh, here in Washington D.C., where we've got a divided Congress and uh, expectations are low for this divided Congress to get anything done. But permitting reform is what the House Republicans chose to make H.R. 1. You know, the very first bill is energy permitting. Um, and uh, Democrats, for perhaps different reasons, also want to improve the energy permitting process. So I think there is a growing um, recognition in this country that we need to change the energy system. And hydropower isn't at the tip of the spear. We're not what folks think of. Uh, wind and solar and batteries are still the sexy items. Uh, but I think we're increasingly getting people to recognize that, hey, we want 24-7 reliable power, and you're not going to get that from, you know, the wind doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't always shine. So I think we're, we're slowly making strides, but um, uh, I don't kid myself. Most people uh, don't say wind, solar, and hydro. Uh, they think about wind and solar and batteries. Right, right, right. And that's uh, that's something that you know. I know here we we work on really hard, but as a whole, it's a it's a hard thing to communicate. And it's also, I I can understand it being a challenge when you look at it on a national level because, um, as we talked about, you know there isn't as much hydropower being utilized in some areas, and so. Uh, you know, might not be seen as an immediate solution to, to some of those challenges. Uh, 
the national hydropower. One, one example on that score um, that just shares the communication challenge. So nationally, hydropower provides about six and a half percent of U.S. power generation. So obviously, it's a, it's an order of magnitude higher in the Pacific Northwest, but across the U.S., it's about six and a half percent. But when you think about essential grid reliability services like Black Start, um, it's forty percent. So Black Start is the capability to restart the grid when there's a when there's a a blackout. Um, it takes energy to restart all the controls at a at a coal plant. Um, so where does that energy come from when the grid is dark? Well, for hydropower, you can lift a gate and those turbines will start spinning and create that initial power, which can then power up the grid. And that's exactly what happened in 2003 when the East Coast had a blackout all the way from Ohio to, to New York City. Um, it was it was Black Start powered by hydropower that restarted the grid. But that is such a technical, nuanced story. Um, so to talk about hydropower's disproportionate role in grid reliability, you know, uh, my own wife's eyes blaze. So um, it's it's a hard message to communicate. I could definitely understand that because it's such a challenge just to communicate how important hydropower is as far as being a firm generating resource as opposed to an intermittent resource and trying to explain the the differences there and you know the nuances involving you know how energy works with the grid and the need to balance and, and everything like that I, I can only imagine the challenge in trying to explain the value of hydropower as it relates to that specific example yeah, it, but I think increasingly people are um, are beginning to get it. Um, it. It's it is complicated, but I think folks are, are they're seeing more outages. Uh, they're seeing more extreme weather events. Um, they're thinking about this more. Um, I remember going to a, a a green schools event when my kids were young, and and I asked the the elementary school kids, you know, where does electricity come from, and and, and um, they said, oh, you know, don't be silly, you just flip the switch. You know, that's where the power comes from, from flipping the switch. So, you know, most folks don't, don't think about the source of power, but I think we're now getting a, a greater level of sophistication uh, among policymakers, not elementary school students, perhaps, um, of, of how we need that, that diversity and we need firm. So, we're getting there. One step at a time. <laughs> you, uh, you mentioned, you know, this sort of, interesting thing that's happening, which is that there's a lot of progress being made, despite maybe the political environment right now. And one of those is the the Inflation Reduction Act. And as I understand it, NHA had a, a huge role in sort of developing the hydropower support and the incentives that were written into that. Could you explain what some of those incentives are and how they're going to help hydropower owners across the nation? Sure, and, and I, I love being um, able to work with a, with a broad team who's been working on this for years um, and, um, and being the kind of face of, of, of hydropower in, in Washington, D.C., um, because there is so much going on across the country and so many people are involved. Um, on the Inflation Reduction Act, we were able to achieve several of our longstanding priorities, one of which was parity with respect to new technologies. Um, there, 
you know, for decades now, we've had uh, policy support for wind and solar, which is really nothing new. We've had policy support for fossil fuels um, for, for generations, whether it's in the form of, of tax credits or liability guarantees or indemnities, kind of all of these energy sources um, have been benefited from federal support over the years. But somehow hydropower um, seems to be one of, the, one of the few exceptions. So we've always been pushing for parity with, with new wind and solar, and we finally got that. They're, they're moving the, the tax code to a technology-neutral approach where any carbon-free resource will benefit from the same tax incentives. So great that we were able to get that. So if you're building a non-power dam or any new generation, you can get the same incentive per, per megawatt as wind and solar. Another challenge was that those incentives would be year by year. And if you're doing a multi-year development, you won't know if that incentive is going to be around when you actually start generating. So thrilled that we were able to get that incentive for 10 years. So now there's a, um, there's a pipeline. You've got some certainty that, yeah, if you build it now, uh, the tax credit will still be there when you come online. Um, the growing need for pump storage um, has, uh, I think, is increasingly getting recognized, and we were able to work with a number of others to get an energy storage tax credit, a 30% investment tax credit, as part of this bill as well. Uh, and that's really important for two reasons. Obviously, 30% off is, is a pretty big deal, um, but also because it helps level the playing field. We found that batteries were increasingly partnering with solar, and they were getting the tax credit that solar had for the whole project. So pump storage was at a competitive disadvantage because we couldn't compete with subsidized batteries and solar. And now that everything's getting the same 30% ITC, um, it's going gonna, it's gonna to help those projects pencil out. So those are a few of the things that are in the uh, Inflation Reduction Act that I'm really proud of. And we're, we're really excited about it here as well. And uh, our, I know certainly a lot of our members, especially those who actually have, you know, an investment in hydropower, whether they're partial owners or owners entirely or whatever the case may be, you know, they're, they're very excited because um, it is going to be a tremendous benefit for the, the hydropower industry. And, and we've got a lot of it here in our backyard. Um, you know, one thing I do want to ask you, I'm just kind of curious as I'm thinking about it, um, you know, given your background, especially, do you think that there's a, a particular reason that hydropower in the past wasn't sort of put on a level playing field or, or given the same sort of uh, benefits and, and treated the same way? I mean, we hear a lot about, for example, you know, hydropower not being considered renewable in the past or, or even in the present, depending on where you're at in the country. Um, I mean, is it just a, a matter of, you know, trying to promote more wind and solar build out or, you know, just kind of overlooking it? Or, or what do you think the reason for that was? I'm sure it's a combination of things. I think I've got a, um, uh, a technical answer and then maybe a, a deeper answer. Um, I think from a technical perspective, the goal of the renewable portfolio standards, uh, and I say this as somebody who spent a fair chunk of his career writing these standards. I helped get this enacted in Maryland. I, I worked on federal renewable portfolio standards. The goal was really to support um, the nascent wind and solar industry to try to show that there's an alternative to fossil fuels. And we, the, by creating these renewable energy credits, it created an additional revenue stream. And if you, if you allowed existing zero carbon resources like hydropower or nuclear to, to get the credit, then you'd flood the system. 
and there wouldn't be, you wouldn't have a, uh, the price of a renewable energy credit would be a quarter as opposed to $25, and it wouldn't provide the incentive for wind and solar. So that was the technical reason at the time. Um, I think we've now learned that that's misguided, that the real goal should be a zero energy grid, a zero carbon grid, not just promoting wind and solar. So we can, we can, we can unfurl the mission accomplished banner, wind and solar are competitive. And now that the goal of clean energy standards is a zero carbon grid, now there's no reason to discriminate against existing carbon-free resources. So now NHA is working to have you know, all carbon-free resources be treated the same, which is kind of like what Senator Wyden did in the, in the tax code. That was a big part of getting that kind of parity, all zero carbon technologies are treated the same. But I think that that technical kind of policy answer is only half the story. I think it goes, there's, there's a more fundamental um, trend or challenge, which is that the hydropower industry is, is dominated by engineers and technical folks who are, are brilliant at building you know, billion dollar complex engineering marvels, um, but they've learned to keep their head down. Um, they don't tell their stories, they don't engage, um, Politically, um, certainly the partnerships, which are so critical to, to political success, um, but the, the clean energy industry has a deep partnership with the environmental community. Um, the hydropower industry kept its head down. And so I think we missed some opportunities on how you define renewable power, for example, in the 90s. And um, you know, by any definition, there is such a thing called the water cycle. And you know, water power is renewable. In fact, we're America's, we're the world's first renewable resource. Um, so that's not a question of state policy. That's a question of physics uh, and science. Um, but uh, the fact that we even have to have that conversation just shows how far outside of the mainstream energy policy conversation we let ourselves be. So that's a big part of what NHA is trying to do is, is elbow our way back to the table um, and uh, and get folks to value what we the attributes that we bring to uh, to the grid. You know the the funny thing I I think as I've heard it described, hydropower is in some ways the first form of solar power in the sense that the water cycle is driven by the sun. Um, you know the evaporation uh, doesn't take place without the the solar energy. Yeah, yeah. I, I actually, I heard it on like a, I think it was a clip from like a Joe Rogan podcast with uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson. And, and that's how he was describing hydropower. Um, you know, and then I, at some point we we kind of slid that into some of our communications. And I know a few people reached out to us and they took kind of offense to it. They were like, what in the world do you mean hydropower is, uh, you know, the first form of solar power? Well, it's like, actually it does, you know, when you break down how the water cycle works, it's like solar or, you know, the, the sun is integral to making that process work, right? Which, which is kind of the very essence of, of renewable power as opposed to, you know, um, fossil fuels. So I, I think it makes perfect, makes perfect sense to me. Right, if right. I go back just for, for half a moment, I, I shared a little bit about what's in the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, I'd love uh, just to share a little bit about what's not in the Inflation Reduction Act. Oh yeah, please. Because please. It's, um, it is really important. I'm, I'm, 
and thrilled that we got parity for new generation, either non-power dams or, or increasing the output from the existing fleet. I'm thrilled that we got the 10-year certainty and the energy storage, pump storage tax credit. But um, what we didn't get is anything to support the existing carbon-free fleet. And that was um, a real shame. We actually did get it included um, by Senator Wyden when he put together as chair of the Senate Finance Committee his energy package. Uh, we weren't in there initially because it was a new idea, but um, we worked it in Capitol Hill. Senator Wyden was supportive. Senator Cantwell was championing this. And we got included in what was then called the Build Back Better bill. But as it, as it evolved in the legislative process from the Build Back Better bill into what became the Inflation Reduction Act, we got taken out. So there was support in there for the existing fleet, specifically if you're making dam safety investments or environmental improvements. Um, those were our, our big dollar items that often uh, give, uh, give asset owners pause when they're deciding, should I relicense a facility or not? Well, if I'm going to have to spend $50 million updating the spillway, it may not be worth it. So a 30% investment tax credit to encourage dam safety investments and environmental investments uh, is something we've been pushing for. We've gotten support from the Uncommon Dialogue Coalition on this. So American Rivers and a number of the other groups and the dam safety organizations have endorsed this kind of tax credit for essentially the three R's the retrofits, the uh, rehabilitation for dam safety, and environmental improvements. So um, we hoped we were going to be part of that package. Ultimately, literally the day it went to the floor of the Senate, um, we, uh, we fell short. And so we're still trying to get that included. Because what that means now is if you've got a, um, uh, looking at relicensing a 100 megawatt hydropower facility, if you, if you build a new 100 megawatt solar array, you're going to get a big tax credit. But if you invest in upgrading the spillway or the fish passage or other attributes of a 100 megawatt hydro facility, you don't get anything. So ironically, for, for all the benefits of the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, it puts existing hydropower at a competitive disadvantage because essentially all forms of renewables get incentives. Even existing carbon-free nuclear got $30 billion in incentives, but existing carbon-free hydropower didn't get anything. So Senator Cantwell is continuing to champion this issue. She is uh, she's wonderful. She's working with Senator Murkowski from Alaska. We've gotten uh, Senator Murkowski's counterpart, uh, Senator Sullivan, to embrace this effort, uh, Senator Stabenow from Michigan. So we've got a good bipartisan uh, team, um, two Democrats, two Republicans, who are pushing for uh, to fix that gap and provide support for, uh, for the infrastructure and environmental improvements that are needed so that existing hydropower isn't at a competitive disadvantage. And we're certainly excited about, about the prospects of that, and, and we're thankful for the representation that hydropower is getting on a, a bipartisan level in both the, the Congress and the Senate. What do you see as the prospects for, for those passing this year um, for both of those bills? Yeah, uh, for the, the federal support for existing hydropower that I just mentioned, um, I, I want to be clear-eyed. Um, 
given all of the tax stuff, particularly energy tax stuff that was done in the last Congress, there's not a whole lot of appetite for doing more tax stuff now. Um, but what, what, we, what we saw was that a lot of the provisions that got included in the Inflation Reduction Act last year were provisions that had been talked about year after year. And it was kind of a sense of inevitability that they would get included in the next package whenever the next package was. And that's exactly what we're trying to do now. I do think uh, that there's some desire. Um, the House Republicans just issued a tax proposal earlier this week. So there's some desire to um, adjust the tax code during this Congress. And I'm hoping that when Congress does that, that we're able to include this provision. It was talked about and kind of socialized. People understand the concept. Uh, we had the Congressional Budget Office do a score of how much this would cost. And the cost is pretty nominal, kind of a, a rounding error in Washington terms. Um, so I think that addressed a lot of the concerns of, oh, is this going to bankrupt the country? And, and uh, the score came back uh, very modest. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic that the next time there's a, a tax vehicle that we'll be able to get included. But I don't know when that is. I'm more optimistic about the timing of license reform. And that's kind of our other big issue. And as I mentioned earlier, that seems to have gotten the attention of, of both sides of the aisle. And they're trying to do something this Congress. So we're certainly pushing to make sure that hydropower reform is included in any more general energy permitting reform that this Congress does. Yeah, as I understand it, the, the situation with the debt ceiling and, and sort of figuring out those other budget concerns kind of consumed a lot of, of energy there and, you know, really shifted the focus away from some of these other things. So um, from, from what it sounds like. But I don't actually think at the end of the day, um, it changed the dynamic or the momentum for energy permitting. They did include some important provisions that NHA had supported on NEPA. So there were some changes there, but um, by and large, uh, and, and then there was kind of a special deal for uh, for the, the pipeline running through West Virginia, which had been promised to uh, Senator Manchin uh, years earlier. So there were kind of narrow fixes like that. But by and large, the, the, the concept or the understanding on Capitol Hill, I think, is that building anything in this country is really, really hard. So Republicans want to streamline those rules to make it easier to build generally, and certainly to build energy projects. And Democrats feel like the, the promise of the infrastructure law and the Inflation Reduction Act, you know, particularly with the climate provisions, we're not going to be able to use those provisions, those tax credits, if nothing can get built. So that they feel that this is kind of a, nat a natural uh, implementation step. Now that we've got the financial incentives in place, we've got to make sure that we don't have the permitting um, red tape that prevent it from being used. So I think from both both sides of the aisle, there's a desire to do something in permitting. And the debt ceiling um, crisis is now beyond, behind us, and we could focus on the more substantive energy permitting reform. Well, that makes perfect sense. And it, it sounds like there's also, you know, a really great opportunity there. You know, it's not always common that you can get kind of everybody even if they're coming from a different place, it sounds like everybody kind of working in the same direction with, with regards to some of this stuff. So um, yeah, and yeah, I, don't, I, don't wanna, I don't want to overstate it, but you know, what the Republicans want and what the Democrats want are very different things. 
but at least now they're talking about the same topic. So Senator Manchin has said he wants to move a bill through the Senate by this August, before the August recess. So that's less than two months. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see if he can pull together uh, a compromise bill, uh, or maybe it's the creative new problem-solving bill um, that um, has enough in there to keep both sides of the aisle engaged and move and take advantage of the momentum that I think they have. Oh, that's great. That's great. As far as that sort of thing goes, you know, we've talked a lot about the the reform, the incentives. Are there are there other policies that you're looking at right now, maybe on the on the horizon, even beyond this, that you'd like to see us hopefully accomplish? Yeah, I, I um, before going any further, I should absolutely I, I mentioned the, the leadership of Senator Cantwell on the um, the federal support, uh, trying to get support for the existing hydropower fleet. She is also leading the effort with Senator Daines on a uh, on license reform. And we've worked with that Uncommon Dialogue Coalition and gotten a, a partnership on a bill there. Um, in the House side, um, again, from the Pacific Northwest, uh, Captain McMorris Rogers from Washington State uh, just um, this week introduced her license reform package, which NHA supports. Um, so it's exciting that we've got kind of serious bills, um, a bipartisan bill in the Senate, and Captain McMorris Rogers is the current chair of the Energy Committee which has jurisdiction over this issue. So when the chair introduces a bill, that bill usually gets enacted. So um, it's, it's exciting that we've got serious efforts on, on in both chambers uh, and we're keeping our, our fingers crossed. Those are the, the two big policy issues that we're working on right now, kind of the federal tax support for the existing fleet um, and, and license reform. If we can get those two, um, Obstacles removed. I think the industry is really uh, is really well positioned for uh, for success in the coming decades. So one thing I wanted to touch on as well, uh, something you mentioned earlier on was uh, ride development, and and you also spoke to um, a, a little bit about you know pump storage as a whole being a, a valuable tool. We've had Eric Steinle from Ride Development on here in the past, and he really spoke a lot about you know how pump storage works what they're focusing on in terms of those projects everything like that but could you just give the audience here a quick rundown of kind of what pump storage hydro projects are and what your anticipation is as far as you know their their build out across the nation and how they'll be implemented yeah i'm I'm a big pump storage booster not surprisingly it's a it's a proven technology that's exactly what the modern grid needs um, uh, I am a lawyer by training, not an engineer, so my, my very simplistic uh, explanation is you've got two water bodies, uh, you know, two reservoirs, and you can release the water from the upper reservoir and turn those turbines and, and generate electricity. Um, and then when there's excess power on the grid, you can pump the water back up from the lower reservoir and do it all over again. So um, the beauty about um, storage is that it provides a long duration, you know, eight hour plus energy storage, um, which uh, originally was important in the 1950s and 60s when this country was building a lot of nuclear power plants. And I found it fascinating to learn that um, often kind of the fleet, I think of, of 22 pump storage facilities that we have operating in this country, um, many of them were built to take the load uh, not to generate power, 
but to consume energy when the nuclear plant was producing more than the grid needed. So when these plants were built in the 50s and 60s, um, nuclear plants can't cycle on and off very easily. So at night, when the nuclear plants were creating more power than needed, you could absorb that excess power by pumping the, store, the water up to a pump storage facility and then release it during the day when everyone goes to their offices and produces and needs power. Well, those same facilities are an amazing solution from what the grid needs now. Now, um, let's take maybe the, the leading example is California. California is producing during the day more solar power than it can use. But that evening ramp when the sun sets, they have a real challenge because all that solar power energy goes away and they've suddenly got to ramp up and produce all this power when the Californians still want their air conditioning and want to stream Netflix. So instead of using pump storage at night, maybe what they were used for in prior decades, you can use that pump storage to uh, pump up during the day when you've got excess um, solar or renewable power and then release it in that afternoon ramp when it's really needed. And I think what's, what's slowly occurring is people are beginning to recognize that it's not just replacing the existing fossil generation gigawatt by gigawatt, that the attributes of those gigawatts matter. Time matters um, and kind of where and when matters. And uh, as amazing as wind and solar are, they're not dispatchable. They produce when, when the sun is shining and the wind is blowing. And as we move to a grid that's increasingly powered by these variable resources, you need something to firm it up. And there was a recent uh, International Hydro, excuse me, International Energy Administration Agency, IEA, International Energy Administration report that said that currently it's natural gas and hydropower that across the globe are being used to provide this firming resource. But as the grid continues to evolve and the natural gas over decades um, evolves away, then the key constraint to 100% clean energy grid is how much flexible hydropower you have. And I think that, that story still needs to be told. It, it may be obvious to those of us in the industry, but I don't think it's, it's widely appreciated that the constraint on how fast and how far we're going to be able to decarbonize the grid is really the amount of long duration energy storage we're going to be able to have. And that's right now is pump storage and hydropower, or reservoir hydropower. Well, speaking to that a bit further, it's something that we do try and emphasize as much as possible here at River Partners and our own messaging. But could you maybe explain, you know, a, kind of a, a high level, why is it that we need that storage and, and that firm generation? I mean, what what is the necessity behind sort of having these things available to us as we build out more intermittent resources. Sure, and again, I'm not the uh, uh, the engineer, but my my simplistic understanding, uh, maybe the way to describe this is to compare it to um, a store, maybe maybe the Gap. You know, the Gap can order sweaters and jeans, um, and if they uh, don't sell as many in one week, they can stay on the shelf and they can sell them the next week. The grid needs to be balanced, you know, minute by minute. You need to balance. Uh, supply and demand. So um, when um, 
when there's a heat wave and everyone's air conditioners cycle on, all of a sudden there's a surge in electricity demand and you need to provide more generation um, fairly immediately. And that's one of the great resources that hydropower can provide is, is we can generate you know, in seconds, whereas some other resources take minutes or, or, or take, um, you know, I think for a nuclear plant, it can take uh, 20, 30 minutes or more. I'm going to get myself in trouble speaking beyond my, my expertise. Uh, it can take a long time to get up to speed, but hydropower can be much more responsive immediately. So to apply it to the grid today, um, if we're getting a ton of power from um, from wind and solar, and then you know a big cloud bank goes across uh, the Central Valley of California, all that solar stops producing as much, and suddenly you need more generation. Um, another example uh, happened a couple of years ago in New England. Um, I think one of the nuclear plants tripped off, and suddenly you lost gigawatts of generation. But Northfield Mountain, that, that first light runs, their pump storage facility was able to instantly jump in, start producing power so that the lights in Boston barely flicker. So that kind of being able to firm up the grid, whether it's from a renewable resource or from a fossil fuel, that flexibility that pump storage and reservoir hydropower provides is, is incredible. And I think it's increasingly getting recognized as important but what hasn't happened is we haven't changed the rules yet. We're not paying for it. So um, when Northfield Mountain kept the lights on in Boston, um, it got paid for the megawatt that it produced, or the megawatts that it produced, but it didn't get paid for the flexibility. Um, and so we're not getting adequately compensated for the value we're providing to the grid. And that's a real structural challenge for the industry. Oh, that's a, that's a great point. And, you know, there's... Uh, definitely an unrecognized value there. One other thing that I, I wanted to ask you, and, and I appreciate your take on it. You know, I, as you mentioned, you know, you're not a not an engineer and everything, but I think in some ways that that's advantageous for the conversation we're having today because uh, there are so many people out there that you know aren't going to have an engineer's level of understanding of the topic either. Um, when you mentioned the the examples of of solar and nuclear, which by the way I thought was fascinating that. You know, you kind of have an inverse problem as far as when there's a, a surplus in power, you know, overnight versus versus during the day. But some people might listen to that and go, well, gosh, you know, if we have a, a surplus of power, isn't that a great thing? Right. You know, we have more energy. Um, but as you mentioned, you know, uh, in addition to obviously, you know, how much you can store that energy, there's also a need to, to balance that and to make sure that you don't have too much. Um, could you just quickly touch on, you know, why that is that? we can't have too much energy going onto our grid at one time? If you've got too much energy going on the grid, you fry the grid. Um, it, it's more than the, it, it's, it's physics. Um, there's only so much power that could get pumped through the, the transmission wires um, before, before, uh, before they can't handle it. Um, and so it creates uh, safety hazards and it, um, the grid doesn't operate. So that's kind of the central challenge of the grid and, and why I think it got called one of the engineering marvels of the last century was because you need to balance the grid kind of, you know, minute by minute to provide, you know, exactly as much uh, supply as there is demand. And as demand changes, then supply needs to instantly adjust. You can't store it on a shelf for, for weeks. 
Um, and that's where batteries are going to be really helpful. I think uh, I am a fan of, of, of batteries. I think they have a, a great role to play. Um, but right now, you know, they're, they're cost effective in the, for you know, a couple of hours of energy storage, you know, maybe three, maybe four, but um, that's really the, the maximum. And so the idea that we can power the grid exclusively with wind and solar with just batteries firming it out, I think ignores the need for long duration, eight hour plus storage that often we're going to need. So that's, um, I, I, again, I, I was hardened, for example, when I saw uh, my friend Jason Brunet, who just took over as the head of the American Clean Power Association, which really represents wind and solar developers. Um, he was asked at a hearing last week about hydropower, and he said, we're the unsung hero of the grid because we are firming up the resources that his members provide. Um, and you can't, uh, and he recognizes that. But I don't expect wind and solar developers to be advocating for hydropower. They just want to build their, build their megawatts, and then it's someone else's job to balance the grid. And so this is why hydropower needs to step up and, and tell its story. I couldn't agree with you more. You know, we're talking a lot about alternative energies here at the podcast, and, you know, it's kind of, you know, the, the subject we've transitioned to here on this one as well. One of the things that we get asked a lot on social media, you know, through like our, our contact form emails and things like that, is people that want to know about, you know, these other forms of hydropower. And, and a big one is this ocean energy or like this wave energy, um, or, you know, sometimes I think it's also referred to as like tidal um, it's an area that we don't have a lot of expertise in, but do you, do you have any idea from your end of things, how far away we are from any sort of, you know, actual viability of these projects being implemented? Yeah, great question. I'm so glad you asked about marine energy. Um, these technologies are really cool. I've gotten the chance to see a few of them in the water and they're awesome. Um, and they're different technologies. Um, wave energy is different from tidal energy, which is different from current energy. Um, they're using kind of different natural um, uh, resources to, to produce the power, but they're they're really cool. A lot of them um, are already in the water. Uh, they're already generating power, um, which is which is great. I know that the Department of Energy did a study. I think last year it was a technical resource potential study, and it found that the technical resource of marine energy, um, either on our coasts or in our rivers was enough to power 57% of U.S. electricity load, 57%, which is staggering. So if you think about it, if we're, that's the technical potential. If we're actually able to, in a cost-effective way, capture 10% of that, that would be 5.7%. Um, solar in this country right now is about 2%. So that's like triple the amount of solar we have now uh, at even only 10% of, of its potential. So I think these, these technologies, which I'm broadly lumping together as marine energy technologies, have, have a huge potential. Um, right now, kind of the first use case are um, areas of, of our country where there's not really reliable access to a grid. So I'm thinking of Igiagig, Alaska, where they've had a current energy technology or, or device, I think they're in their second generation now, which has been producing power for a community that otherwise has to fly in diesel generation, diesel oil on, on seaplanes in order to have, have generation. Um, 
So there's kind of use cases where um, where these technologies can provide power where there's really otherwise no other resource. But it's true as well, even going from kind of rural Alaska to New York City, where um, the company Burden put a, a current energy device um, right in the East River. It's basically a wind turbine um, underwater, and it produced power 365, seven days a week, um, uh, 24-7, um, during its entire operation. So if you've got an area where you need baseload generation, um, you know, again, something that's going to produce, produce power perhaps when wind and solar aren't, these technologies have a, have a great role. Um, we're, pushing, um, we're pushing the development of these technologies right now. I think we're at the stage, they're, they're in various stages of development. I think many of them are beyond the, the research and development stage. They're really in the demonstrating um, and, um, and commercialization stage. And how do we go from one project in the East River to an industry and a whole fleet of projects? And that's, um, that, that's one of the valleys of death that the industry is trying to grapple with. It's, it's, it really is exciting, huge potential, though. I mean, ultimately, you know, one of the, the big takeaways is, you know, despite the challenges that we do face on a regular basis, there is a lot of opportunity and, and a lot of excitement here as far as what we can accomplish and, and look forward to. Uh, what else do you think our listeners here could look forward to with regards to your work at NHA? Uh, well, continuing the theme of what we were just talking about with marine energy technologies, um, I'm not making a prediction here, but how cool would it be if in, if in 20 years we've got major offshore wind projects that are off of both coasts, so far out to sea that we don't see them and it doesn't disturb our beaches, but along those offshore wind projects, we've got marine energy devices, wave devices and current devices that are connected to the same offshore wind transmission. And when the wind isn't blowing for offshore wind, we've got reservoir hydro and pump storage on land to balance out those gigawatts of generation, uh, along with wind and solar as well. I mean, I can imagine an a electricity grid that, um, that is clean, that is reliable, and frankly, it's using the technology that's already been, um, been established, but it's, it's commercializing all of that technology and integrating it. I think it really could create a, uh, a wonderful clean energy future. So I'm incredibly excited by, you know, whether it's that scenario where there's a hundred other variations um, of where we're going. Um, and I'm excited about um, NHA's role in connecting the industry, in um, helping the industry grow, we haven't really talked about the need to um, replace the aging workforce. We are experiencing what some have called a, a silver tsunami. We've got an aging workforce. Um, and hopefully, from my perspective, um, and from NHA's perspective, hopefully that new workforce will be a workforce that celebrates diversity. Um, our industry is dominated by men, um, and most of those men are white men. Um, and the industry does not look like the customers we serve. So NHA has established a future leaders of water power group, and we've updated our bylaws to incorporate diversity, equity, and inclusion in, in all of our programming and in our whole mindset of how we operate to make sure that we're recruiting the new workforce with the expertise that the industry needs and taking advantage of all the different diverse talent that is out there. 
So that's part of my my vision for what NHJ does in the in the coming years, but also how the industry progresses. Well, and that's something that uh, you know I did want to give. NHA a shout out and uh, and your event Clean Currents, which I touched on a little bit earlier in the podcast, which is really you know the premier hydropower and sort of you know water power event in the nation, um, which also you know is a bit of an industry thing, right? But I was also going to ask you how the listeners here of the podcast can get involved in some of the things that you're working on and you know really get involved in being you know hydropower advocates and and helping the resource advance. It, it sounds like kind of the, the answer to both of those is, hey, if you want to go to some of these events and, and you want to be a part of what NHA does, uh, maybe this is the, the workforce to be looking into for anyone out there who's searching for a career. Yeah, so let me give you a few different, a few different answers. Um, uh, the, the industry has roughly 68,000 people in the hydropower industry. Um, you know, we... In terms of those number that are active within NHA, you know, we're reaching only a small portion. So um, I think 85% of the generation in this country are generated by companies that are part of the national hydropower industry. So if you're if you're listening to this and you're you're somebody who's in the hydropower industry but never heard of NHA or never been involved, um, check us out. Um, The the odds are that your company's already a member. And that you can engage with us and take advantage of our technical trainings, our events, all that we offer. Uh, your company is probably already a member and you can take advantage of it at, at no cost. Um, if you're interested in engaging with us, we also have individual memberships that are, are reasonably priced because we want to get you know, everybody as engaged as possible. Um, we do do the big event every year, um, Clean Currents. We're meeting in Cincinnati in October of this year. But we're coming to Portland next year, Portland, Oregon. We're coming to Pacific Northwest in 2024. So um, you can kind of book that as an early date on your on your calendar. Um, and uh, we do do events around the country. We've got a regional meeting in August in Alaska. We've got another in December in California. Um, we partner uh, a lot with the Northwest Hydro Association and the great work that Brenna um, and everyone there does. So. Um, uh, we love we love all the engagement we can get. Well, I did a little bit of quick math here too, and uh, based on what you said, if if the industry is roughly made up of sixty eight thousand individuals or so, and the the energy source, um, you know, hydropower itself is somewhere around, I think you said six six and a half percent somewhere in there. Um, you know, it's it's like that chunk of our energy in terms of the nation is is being upheld by a tiny percentage, I mean, far less than 1% of the total population. Um, so, you know, we could use all the, all the people on board we can get, it sounds like. Yeah, I'd never, I'd never thought to, to think about it that way, but that's fascinating. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, I'm, I'm stunned when I go to these hydropower facilities um, at how few people there are. You know, once, one, obviously they're, they're massive uh, engineering marvels. Um, but once they're built, it's, you know, it's not, not you don't need um, a massive fleet to, to operate and maintain them, which is amazing. Um, I also love the, the phrase that uh, I heard Herbie Johnson from Southern Company use, that these facilities are forever assets. You know, I've toured facilities that have been around for over 100 years. 
You know, Thomas Edison was involved in, in designing them. They're, they're amazing assets, and they're still cost-effective producing power now. And in fact, kind of communities have grown up around the hydropower, that because the hydropower, because they needed the flood control or the water storage, they built a reservoir, and to offset the cost of the reservoir, they built the hydropower facility. And now that reservoir is the source of summer homes and ecotourism, and the towns have grown up around it. Um, and uh, it's amazing, kind of, you don't see that with other technologies. When I worked in wind and solar, um, it was a source of, of megawatts, but not really kind of a central part of the community. And, and these forever assets are, are part of what I love about hydropower. No, that is a that is a really good point. You know, we're winding down on time here, and I really appreciate you coming on today and, and making the time to to make this happen. I know uh, you got a lot going on there and and everything like that. Um, you know, the the last thing that we always do here on the podcast is something a little bit kind of off script and um, a little bit uh, you know on the spot, uh, which is to ask all of our guests for a, a piece of life advice. And the reason I do that is I try and kind of give our audience the opportunity to to get to know the guests personally a, a bit on a better level and you know really understand the the human side of what we're talking about you know so much of of the policy the the understanding of the technology everything like that you know it's easy to get really deep in the weeds and and forget that ultimately you know we are all people here uh, two of 68,000 from the sounds of it and so uh, I I just wanted to ask you you know what uh, what life advice could you share with our audience today? It doesn't have to be anything related to, to your work or anything that we've talked about here today, but just uh, something that is really near and dear to your heart. Uh, wow, what a great question. Um, the first thing that, that, that occurs to me is, um, is to look for the commonalities. It, it's really easy. Yeah, I'm, I'm talking to you, working from Washington, D.C. Um, it's really easy to look for the issues which divide us. Um, but I think, and, and, and the press, I think, is biased towards conflict. That's what sells newspapers. Um, but I think there's so much uh, commonality um, that, uh, that connect us. And that's certainly true in the hydropower world, but it's also true just in, in life. And, you know, if you look for the commonalities rather than the differences, uh, you can have a good time and you can, you can have interesting conversations with all sorts of people who you um, generally, uh, you know, may not uh, otherwise engage with. Um, and it certainly, you know, helped us, you know, find areas to collaborate, even in, 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 the, in the hydropower context, with folks who we otherwise, you know, disagree with on lots of things, but we found areas to collaborate in. So I guess that's the, uh, the first instinct is, is, is look for the areas of commonality rather than the areas of difference. Certainly. And, you know, th- what you said, I, I think, is especially resonates for me because, you know, it is something that is sometimes easy to forget is, you know, we might be at odds about how we want to solve some of our energy challenges, but uh, we're ultimately all people that, you know, go to work, we got commutes, we got families, we're, you know, doing all kinds of things outside of, you know, just trying to solve these, you know, big challenging issues with, with energy and, and environment and things like that. Yeah. And it's, um, and life's too short. You want to have fun. So, you know, you can, you can go out and, and go for hikes and play tennis and enjoy life. And you don't have to engage with your neighbors on the politically controversial things that you may not want to 
you may not want to know that you know what they do uh, or, or how they vote. Um, uh, we're so tribal these days. Um, I consider myself a moderate, and and um, you know, much more interested in how can we collaborate and find common areas and, and get things done rather than look for areas where we disagree. Absolutely, and and I think that uh, you know from what I can tell that. That attitude has uh, definitely led NHA towards where you guys are today, and, and we really appreciate the work that you guys have done, and also really appreciate you making the time to, to come on today. Thank you for that. Literally my pleasure. Love the partnership with, uh, uh, with you guys, and look forward to continuing in the, in the years ahead. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, uh, I'm sure we'll be in touch, and uh, yeah, look forward to Clean Currents coming up this, uh, this October. Look forward to seeing you there. It's hard to follow that one up with a good outro. Malcolm is just on point with everything. Needless to say, there's a reason he's able to lead an organization like the National Hydropower Association. What I will say is that for our listeners who've kept up with every episode of the podcast, we've gained some really great insight into hydropower beyond our region between today and the last one we did with Nick Dominguez from Lassen. Be it our neighbors just to the south or those on the opposite coast, we can learn a lot from comparing and contrasting their hydropower with our own. For me personally, this has all really reinforced the notion that Northwest hydropower is valuable. It's indispensable. And it really is the leader for the United States when it comes to hydro. I know we say all of this a lot, but I would argue that we've all been kind of desensitized to such strong statements as a result of marketing that constantly exaggerates and inflates everything. I know this episode is going to drop in the heat of summer, but do you remember that scene from Elf with the world's best cup of coffee? My point in bringing that up is simply saying how great our hydropower is here only goes so far. Whether it was the past two episodes we've done or any of the others prior to that, I hope that DAM is making a compelling case for you as to why our hydropower is so great. I know that that's really what it's done for me. Okay, you've heard enough of what I think and my movie references, so now it's time to hear what you think. Let me know what you learned from today's episode, what you'd like to hear on future episodes, what you think of the podcast in general, or what your favorite Christmas movie is by going to the brand new nwriverpartners.org website and using our contact form. You can also email us directly at info at nwriverpartners.org. Now, keep those fingers tapping away by writing up a review on your favorite listening platform. Your positive reviews keep the podcast going and growing, and I sincerely thank you. You can also simply rate the podcast if you'd rather not do the writing. And while you're there, make sure you're subscribed and you've turned on notifications for new episodes, which arrive every other Friday. As a final reminder, you can always visit us at NW River Partners on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn to see what we're up to on the socials. And with that, I've got nothing else for you. So until next time, see ya!